Hello, and welcome to the Ever Widening Circles podcast, designed to give you more joy, less fear, and no end to the evidence that a brighter future is possible. This podcast will give you a fresh perspective on the world around you. We want you to hear from thought leaders in a wave of progress well underway around the globe that we're calling the conspiracy of goodness. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we have been changing the negative dialogue about our times by celebrating the insight and innovations that prove it is still an amazing world. And along the way, I've been having these amazing conversations with thought leaders that we are now sharing with you. Today, I'm going to chat with Dr. Suikumar Rao. He does prove truly that it is an amazing world. He helps me make practical leaps in my way of thinking every time I'm lucky enough to chat with Dr. Rao. So we're going to have what I like to call a meandering conversation today. We talked a little bit ahead of time about the kinds of things that Dr. Rao is being asked by lots and lots of people. So we kind of figure if we go there, we're, we will be super helpful. But I like to start with my guests introducing themselves because I can never quite cover the scope of people's work when describing them. And that would happen for sure if I tried to introduce Sweetkumar. So Sweetkumar, tell us about yourself and get us on the in the right frame of mind. Thank you, Linda. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. So uh, what can I say about what I do? Let me tell you what I believe. I believe that human life is both very short and very long, but each day is wasted if you're not radiantly alive. You know, in each day, if there aren't several moments when you are not radiantly alive, when your blood isn't singing at the thought of being what you are and doing what you do, then that is a wasted day. And it is possible for all of us to lead a life where for a big chunk of the time, we are simply joyous at the thought of being alive and being where we are and doing what we do. And I've discovered that there are things we do which prevent us from reaching that state. And what we have to do is stop doing those things. And there are things we can do which will help us get there. And those are things we should be doing. And what they are and how to employ them, that's what my life work is. So I run courses and they're now online because of COVID-19. And I also am an executive coach. And I find that persons who come to me are entrepreneurs and senior executives. And they find that by implementing what I share with them, they become ever so much more effective and efficient in what they do. You know, it's as if they reach higher orbits of performance and achievement. And more important, they feel start feeling good about their life. And working with them is a pleasure and a privilege. So that's me in a nutshell, a big nutshell. Nice. You know, if I were to say what I my takeaway message is a lot of times when I talk to you, first of all, let's just start there. Sikamar and I have a very keen interest in leaving room for serendipity in our lives. And share the story of how we came across each other. <laughs> I hardly ever come to Vermont, uh, Linda. 
But there were three vestige groups that I was scheduled to address. And a long time ago, I said, Jay, I really don't really don't want to go to Vermont. So I was going to decline them. But the person who runs those groups sent me an email, and I spoke to her. And she was so nice, I said, let's do it. And then about a couple of weeks or so before I was scheduled to travel to Burlington, I came across an email, and I still don't know how it came to me, Forever Widening Circles, and I said, boy, this is wonderful. And, of course, I followed it back to see who started it, and I ran across Linda, and then I looked at the bottom, and uh, it was some town in uh, Vermont, and I didn't know what town it was, but I sent her an email saying, hey, I'm going to be in Burlington. Are you close by? Would you like to meet? And Linda responded, and I followed up, and we had a phone conversation, and I invited her to come to my talk, and she did. And then she sent her daughter and some other members of the staff over to attend this next talk the following day, and it it just built up from there. And I can tell you, I love your entire family. I love what you do, and it's such a joy to uh, participate uh, together. Oh, well, I'll tell you, you know, I got a lot of emails. I think there's even a strange phone call in that story where I was pushing back in an airplane in Colorado after doing a speaking thing. I never pick up the phone as the airplane is pushing back, but for some reason I did. And we had a great conversation then. I want to share with everybody listening to this what we've found that we can all celebrate. Because that, to me, is sort of the essence of your work, is that you've you've taught me to pay attention to what I'm paying attention to. And, you know, the kind of wisdom that you are sharing with the world has its roots pretty far back. I mean, these the, tell us a little bit about where you get your inspiration. Absolutely. I've got to narrate a little bit about my personal history so that it makes sense. So I have a PhD in business from Columbia University. I was very successful in the corporate world, but I got tired and burnt out by corporate politics. So I went into academia thinking there would be no politics in a university environment. I was wrong. I think it was Kissinger who said the fights are so much more vicious in a university because the stakes are so small, and he nailed that one. (laughs) So I was stuck and stagnant and feeling I'd wasted my life and thrown away a potential brilliant career. And all my life I'd been doing a lot of reading, spiritual biography, mystical autobiography. They would take me to a wonderful place and I came back to the real world and it sucked. Mm -hmm. So I remember thinking, if all of this is useful, only if you're sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the hurly-burly, then it's useless. But somehow I knew... That wasn't true. I knew that this was very valuable, perhaps even the only thing that was valuable. I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. So one day I got an idea. Why don't I take the teachings of the world's greatest masters, strip them of religious, cultural, and other connotations, and adapt them into exercises so that they're acceptable to intelligent people in a post-industrial society? And the thought of doing that made me come alive. So that's what I did. And then it simply took off. You know, I created a course called Creativity and Personal Mastery. And it was among the highest rated and most popular courses at many of the world's top business schools. 
I now teach it in uh, New York, London, and San Francisco. And there is an online version. And I do personal coaching and corporate engagements. And it's all devoted to the same thing. How can we take these great truths which were articulated by giants who completely understood the human condition and use them today? See, those giants completely knew the problems that we're facing. But they spoke in language and used examples that were pertinent to the time and geography that they were in. And persons in a modern post-industrial economy may not necessarily relate to them. So I am a translator. I mean, there is deep wisdom in what I say, but that deep wisdom is being channeled through me. It's not from me. That is such a brilliant way to say it. That's that's more like it when I describe my friendship with you to people from time to time. I'm often kind of stumbling around to try and get it all into a sentence or two. And that's a great way to explain how I understand how you've improved my way of thinking so many times. Before we get into the things that we sort of agreed we wanted to cover for people, let's give let's give people a really concrete example. At, and it is one of the first things I ever used, started using that you said to me. I can't remember, but after our first conversation, which was all sweetness and light, I must have been um, lamenting about something in the social innovators roller coaster that I'm on. And you said, Linda, good thing, bad thing. <laughs> now, this is a piece of wisdom and insight that my whole entire team at Everwidening Circles and, and my daughter and I use probably every day. Can you share that one bit of practical knowledge before we dive in? Certainly. There are many, many stories and parables which I draw from. And my favorite is one which comes from the Sufi tradition. And it talks about a man and his son, and they lived in a beautiful valley, and they were very happy, but they were also dirt poor. And the man decided he was sick and tired of being dirt poor, and he was going to become a rich man, and he decided he was going to become a rich man by breeding horses. So he bought a stallion, did not have enough money to buy a stallion, so he borrowed heavily from the neighbors, and the very day he bought the stallion, it escaped. It kicked the top bar loose from the paddock where he housed it and ran away. And all the neighbors came running around saying, you were going to become a rich man, but your stallion has run away. And you still owe us money. You are screwed. Mm -hmm. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. That stallion fell in with a group of wild horses, and they were close to where the man lived, and he was able to entice them into his paddock, which he had repaired, so escape was no longer possible. And now all of a sudden, he had the stallion back, plus about a dozen wild horses. And by the standards of that village, that made him a wealthy man. The neighbors came around awestruck. You know, we thought you were destitute, but fortune smiled upon you. How lucky you are. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. The man and his son started to break the horses so they could sell them on the market. And one of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg. And it broke and it healed crooked. And the neighbors came around commiserating. He was such a fine young lad, and now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How unfortunate. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. That summer, the king of the country declared war on a neighboring country, and press gangs moved through the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young men to serve in the army. But this man's son was spared because he had a game leg. 
And the neighbors had tears in their eyes as they rolled around. We don't know if we will ever see our sons alive again, but you still have your son with you. How lucky you are. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it goes on like that forever. Now, there are two levels of this story, and I'll cover both of them if you like. Mm -hmm. Level one is, have you ever had something happen in your life that at the time it happened, you thought this is terrible. But you can now look back upon it and say, hey, that wasn't so terrible after all, or even that was a good thing. When they think about it, most people can come up with numerous such examples. And I remember I was speaking before the Global Executive Summit of the Entrepreneurs Organization. At this point, somebody got up in the van and started waving his hands. I ignored him. He got up on his chair and started waving his hands, and I could no longer ignore him because everybody was looking at him anyway. So he said, Professor Rav, I have a perfect example for you. He graduated from one of the top schools in India. He graduated from one of the IITs, and he got a master's from Stanford. He got a job offer from a you know, very prestigious high-tech firm, and all his friends got offers with other firms, and he looked forward to building his career, continuing his friendship. But he had an immigration problem as a result of which he had to leave the country. He hired a top lawyer and tried to fight it, but it didn't work, and he had to leave. And he was desolate. He thought, this is it. This is the end of my career. Among other things, he had student debt. And when you have student debt in dollars and you're earning in rupees, you're gone. I mean, that's it. That's mm -hmm. Right. But he said, you know, Professor Rao, as a result of my having to leave the country, I met this wonderful lady who's now my wife. I teamed up with two of my college buddies and we founded a company and it's going gangbusters. All my clients are in America. I come to America at least six times a year. I live a picture-perfect life. And none of this would have happened if I hadn't been forced to leave the country. So look back on your own life. Something happened at some time and you thought this was terrible. Can you look back upon it and say, hey, that wasn't so terrible or even that was good? So if something happened in your life in the past that when it happened, you thought was terrible, but now you can see it wasn't so terrible or perhaps it was even good. Is it just possible that what you are today about to label terrible could in X years turn out to be wonderful? Is it possible? Even stopping to ask that question, Linda, takes us to a different emotional domain. And if you then follow it up with the next question, is there anything I can do to actually make it so? And you move from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. Oh, that is just so, so beautiful and so helpful for our times right now. Is it possible that, you know, I think it's like something I talk to people a lot about. We've just got to pause before we follow our emotions, our impulses over the cliff. And the other thing that this does, Linda, is it makes us extremely resilient. Resilience, of course, is the ability to bounce back from adversity. Extreme resilience is bouncing back so fast that an external observer might not even know that you've been hit by an adverse event. So what causes adversity? This is very important for persons listening to us, listening to us to understand. Suffering does not begin when an event occurs. Suffering begins the moment we label that event, this is bad, this is terrible, I cannot bear it. This is really important. Let's say you lose your job. 
say, okay, now you have a lot of spare time, but you lose your job and you say, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? I have my kids' financial tuition to pay. I have my mortgage payments to make. I don't know if I'll get out of the job. This is terrible. And the moment you say this is terrible, at that instant, suffering begins. Suffering doesn't begin when an event occurs. This is very important to bear in mind. Oh, I've sweet Kumar can see me. <laughs> oh, we're only recording the audio part, but I just leaned way back in my chair and threw my hands up. Say that again. Say that again. When does the suffering start? Whenever an event happens, any event, it does not cause suffering. Suffering begins the instant you label that event, this is bad, this is terrible, I cannot bear it. So what happens if you never label an event bad? Suffering never begins. That's how you become not resilient, but extremely resilient, because the moment something happens and you're about to say this is bad and you pause and ask yourself, is there any way in which this could possibly be a good thing? And then you then ask yourself, and what can I do to actually make it a good thing? And you weird effortlessly from despair to possibility and you're never down. So nothing ever phases you. So you become incredibly resilient because You don't have to bounce back from adversity because adversity never happens to you. Stuff happens to you, but in your head, you don't label it adversity. You label it this happened. Sweet Kumar, we have had this conversation several times, and I've never heard you quite put it this this succinctly. Maybe when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and I never was listening. Or maybe, you know, we haven't talked a lot during the COVID pandemic. We were talking a lot before, right? Maybe I was just ready to hear that, as so many people are now with all kinds of turmoil in their lives. You know, I emailed you this morning to say, you know, what what are you hearing pe- from people? What are they asking? What are they? What what are people struggling with? And you said that there's this consistent undertone in people's lives: anxiety about their career, their their job security, where we're headed in society their health, all this stuff. I'm seeing that in my office too. I'm actually starting to see lots more people, um, my patients who are really, really becoming emotionally crippled by the fear uh, that, that they're feeling. So take where we are now and apply it to like just what you're seeing. Tell me about what you're seeing and what you offer people in the way of perspective. Well, what I offer people by way of perspective is the wisdom of the world's greatest masters who completely understood how human minds work. And they came up with solutions that have been tested over millennia, and they absolutely work. Anytime, right? They, they, they're not time-dependent or era. Beyond all times. It's completely beyond all times. Let me give you a simple example of this. What is happening right now is that we are being besieged on all sides, on television, on radio, on social media, uh, newspapers, on how bad things are, how we've got autocratic leaders and how society is disintegrating. And to add to that, we have the pandemic, there are health concerns, there uncertainty about career, you know, what's going to happen to our country, what's going to happen to our economy, what's going to happen to me personally, what's going to happen to my family. And all of that reminds me of a wonderful quote by Mark Twain. And it's very funny, but it's also very profound. 
And Mark Twain said something to the effect that I've suffered a great many tragedies in my life, most of which never happened. (laughs) Okay, we got to pause there and think about that a minute. (laughs) I've suffered a great many tragedies in my life, most of which never happened. So we imagine all of these things happen. And when we imagine them, we imagine them so strongly that the emotions associated with them come into our head and spill over and they paralyze us. Now, what I encourage people to do is recognize that your awareness is like a flashlight. Let me repeat that. Your awareness is like a flashlight. What does a flashlight do? A flashlight illuminates whatever you shine it on. Shine it on the wall in front of you, it lights up the wall. Shine it on the floor, it lights up the floor. Is that right, Linda? Absolutely. Absolutely. Your awareness is like a flashlight, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. So, Linda, I want you to consider that your awareness is like a flashlight, and I want you to shine it on the chair in which you are sitting. Now, the moment you do that, you become conscious of the pressure of your buttocks on the chair. You can feel the fabric or the leather pressing against the back of your thighs. Is that right? Absolutely. One minute ago, you were not aware of any of this, and now you are aware of it. How come? Yeah, and I'm sitting in a really uncomfortable chair that I didn't notice until you took me through that exercise. So this happens because you shone the flashlight of your awareness on the seat in which you were sitting. We have an incredible ability with this flashlight of our awareness to light up whatever we want. And what do we do? We shine the flashlight of this awareness on the things that are wrong in our lives, on the things that we think are wrong in our lives, not necessarily the things that are wrong in our life, but the things that we think are wrong in our lives. And that's what gets illuminated. So that's where we spend our time, along with the emotions and the detritus that come from this. Now, there are... 50, 60, 200 things which are pretty damn good about our lives. But we ignore that. Do you, for example, think about the fact that uh, you don't have to worry about whether you're going to have dinner tonight? That you're not constantly hungry? That you have a bed to sleep in? That you have a roof over your head? You do recognize that any one of these is a big deal in a big chunk of the world outside, right? Mm, Absolutely, yes. When I point that out, You recognize that you're privileged and fortunate, but you don't feel privileged and fortunate. And the reason you don't feel privileged and fortunate is because you don't shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many ways in which you're truly blessed. But you insist on shining on the two, three or four things, two, three or four ways in which you are unhappy and dissatisfied. Okay, so this ties very much into something that I think we we talked just before we we started recording that I've recently published a book called Happiness is an Option. Uh-huh. And that's one of the big things I'd love for you to comment on that I I really am trying to drive home to people is this this notion that we that what we give our attention to matters now more than ever. And that we are hardwired, we should just acknowledge this that the reason why we made it through a million years of evolution, uh, saber-toothed tigers and it all, is because we have this really neat part of our brain called the amygdala that's really old and protects us 
from the very dangerous things in life. But if we run around through life always with the amygdala, our, our flight or fight syndrome in the driver's seat, we're going to pay attention to the, all the bad stuff. And we're, we're going to forget about the gratitude and we're just not going to see it. Tell me some, what, what are your thoughts on those sort of notions? The sort of notion is we don't live in a world where our physical safety depends on our picking up on uh, things which could literally eat us or destroy us. But we have conditioned ourselves to constantly be looking on things which are wrong in our lives because mm. we have this notion that somehow this is wrong and this is what I can do to make it right. And when I make it right, I'm going to be happy, satisfied, passionate, fulfilled, and so on. This is a flawed bottle. And what I advocate is for persons to recognize that they are happy, not I will get this and therefore I will be happy, but I am happy and from my place of happiness, I will go out to get this because I have a preference. And when you do that, you're likely to get it anyway. You don't get it because you need it. You try to get it because that is your path in life. And if you get it, fantastic. If you don't get it, fantastic. Because this is a mistake that most of us make, Linda. We set a goal for ourselves and we try very hard to get it. And we live our lives the following way. I set a goal for myself. I tried hard. I succeeded. Life's a blast. Or I set a goal for myself. I tried hard. I did not succeed. I failed. Life sucks. Now, whether or not you reach your goal is not a function of your effort. Of course, your effort has something to do with it, but there are any number of reasons why you might not get a particular goal that you wanted to. My wife and I are tennis fanatics. We, you know, we've been to the U.S. Open every year. We've been numerous times to the French Open, went to the Australian Open two years ago. This year, we were going to Wimbledon. Darling, we were going to Wimbledon. I bought the tickets last year. <laughs> And for those of you who know, getting good seats at Wimbledon, that's not an expense. That's a capital investment. <laughs> of course. Okay. <laughs> Somebody said, no, Sri Kumar, you're not going to Wimbledon. I'd say, yeah, perhaps, but I think the chances are not for it. And I'd have been thinking in terms of maybe a family member fell ill or something like that. But I would never have imagined that I would not go to Wimbledon because Wimbledon would be canceled. And in any case, there would be no planes between uh, New York and London. You never know what could happen. We like to think about our lives and things around us as things that we control or partially control. But the reality is we have no control. We never had control. We never will have control. So here's the mistake we make. We think that setting a goal and trying to reach it, the benefit of doing that is reaching the goal. Wrong. We don't have any control ever over whether we'll reach a goal or not. The benefit of setting a goal and trying our level best to achieve the goal is the learning and growth that happen in us and to us as we try our level best to achieve the goal. If we actually achieve the goal, that is a bonus. Let's be immensely grateful. And if we don't achieve the goal, the learning and growth have already happened, so we're ahead of the game. That is the way to live life, where you're doing things out of the fullness of your being as opposed to being a wanting self, desperately trying to get stuff 
to try and fulfill and make oneself happy, which is where most of us are stuck in. Hey, everyone. Dr. Linda here. I wanted to let you know that we just released my book, Happiness is an Option. In the book, I share insights you can use immediately to thrive in the era of the internet. Life is too short. What we are seeing on the internet, social media, and the news is only a slice of reality. But there are four simple shifts you can make to start seeing the rest of the story. And that story can send you soaring every day. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or by going to the website for the book, happieroption.com. So thanks so much for supporting us this way too. So I got to tell you, I grew up in a household where you were judged by how much you could get done in a day. I mean, really, that was the goal. How much could you get done by by day's end? And um, my husband, in fact, it's so much part of my character that my husband calls me a human doing instead of a human being. <laughs> and I think we could all use a lot more beingness um, instead of doing this. But it does remind me of of a struggle that we all have right now is that we had these these things, like you mentioned Wimbledon. I had a really important wedding in my life that didn't happen. And um, there, were, there were all these things that we were planning in the year 2020, all of us, graduations and new jobs and all the things. And there were losses. Some of us are grieving things that, that are, have changed in our life that feel like gigantic losses. But you've always helped me kind of understand that it's the process. Even with the launch of the book, um, you said to me once, you know, you in a very kind way, you know, like you've done your work. You did the thing. You worked very, very hard to get it as right as you could possibly get it. And then once it's out there, don't be married to an outcome. You did the stuff. So talk to us about that as it relates to some of the kind of um, upheavals that are happening in people's personal lives that you're seeing. If you look at the parable of shade with you, I talked about one side of it. Did anything ever bad ever happen in your life that at the time it happened, you thought it was bad, but now you can look back and say, hey, this is you know, not so bad, or even if it's good. I didn't talk about the other side of it, which is, did ever anything ever happen in your life that at the time it happened, you thought it was good, or that you can look back and say, hey, this was terrible. And there are instances of that too. Like, look at the number of people from top business schools who got a job with this company that was known as the innovative company and the place to work at. And uh, that company was Enron and two weeks after they joined, you know, it went down the tubes. Stuff like that happens also. So the trick is not to say something is it bad. And the trick is not to get elated when something happens and you say, is this good? Because good and bad are both in duality. And what you really want is to go beyond the duality. So whenever something happens, don't label it good, don't label it bad, simply label it as this happened. And then you move on to what do I do next? Mm -hmm. 
So we are certainly living in, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but, uh, you know, unusual times. It isn't unprecedented because whatever we can look at in terms uh, from political unrest to economic collapse has happened in many other eras. And some of those were even more dramatic than what we're experiencing. We just think it's deeper and bigger because we're part of it now. But if you look at historical markers, much worse stuff has happened. So whatever it is, it's unquestionably turbulent, but it is possible for us to look at it from the sense of history and say, this happens and this too will pass. And will I be personally affected? Absolutely. Could this have an effect on my income, my, you know, the way in which I think my life could unfold and so on? Absolutely. And I will do what I can to preserve what I have and I may succeed or I may not succeed. But whatever it is, I'm going to do it from a space of joy because, as I mentioned earlier, life is short. So why am I going to let something external that I have no control over affect how I feel and how I do? And I don't have to do that. So that really brings me to something I was hoping we would get to today because I love how you've made me pay attention to something in my life that that I think is very quintessential to what's kind of torturing us all when we are struggling during these times. And it's the mental chatter thing. So for me, I'm always telling people to listen to the stories they're telling themselves because our mind is just made so, so perfect for filling in the gaps. Like we might really, really know the whole of any story, but our mind just makes it up as we go to fill in the gaps because it's trying to make sense of it. So the mental chatter, tell us about your thoughts about this constant dialogue, this negative dialogue that's running in our heads about the future in the world. I'd like to make a slight correction what you said, and I'll do that after explaining mental chatter. Good, go for it. Mental chatter is the internal monologue that we have going on in our heads all the time. It begins when we get up in the morning, is with us throughout the day, is with us right now. Do I have chatter going on in my head? What does it say? We get up in the morning and say, oh, my God, there's the alarm. What time is it? Let me hit the snooze button. I want to get another 10 minutes of sleep. Do I have time? Oh, my God, there's this project that's due today. Here's what I have to do. That, that incessant demon that's driving us. A lot of the time, your mental chatter tells you, oh, you're not good enough. There is. Uh, have I ever shared with you the parable of the second arrow? No, please do, because uh, these parables are very helpful. It comes from the Buddhist tradition. And Buddha asked Ananda, one of his disciples, Ananda, if an arrow were to hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? And Buddha not so said, yes, Lord, it would be very painful. And if a second arrow would hit you exactly where the first arrow hit you, would it not be even more painful? Yes, Lord, it would be even more painful. And the Buddha asks, why then do you shoot the second arrow? And that requires some explanation, so I'll explain by means of a story. There was a woman, and she was a good mother, and she had a son, and the son turned 16, and he got himself his provisional driver's license. And one day he comes up to his mother and says, hey, mom, there's a group of my friends getting together and I want to go meet them. And can I take the car? The mother says, of course not. You just got your license. You know, how could you take the car? 
Where do you have to go? I'll drop you. He says, no, no, mom, you don't understand. You can't be there. I have to be there myself. We, we don't want parents around the place. So mother says, okay, that's fine. There's Uber, there's Lyft. What are you like? No, no, mom, you don't understand. You can't be there and I have to take the car. And the mother says, no. Says, mom, you don't realize how important this is for me. I have to be there. I have to take the car. And he begged and he wheedled and he pleaded. And you know how children are. And bit by bit, his mother started to give way and she took promises. You're not going to drink. No, 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 mom, no drinking. And you're going to be back by 10 o'clock. Yes. And you're going to call me. Yes. So finally, reluctantly, the mother gives him the keys. Then he goes off. And the moment he gets the keys, of course, he forgets all his promises. He has too many beers, forgets the curfew and is coming back, gets into a serious accident, has to be operated on immediately. And his mother is there at the uh, hospital. And uh, when he's out of the operation into the recovery room, she dashes home to have a quick shower so she can go back to the hospital. And at that time, her friend calls. And her friend says, what kind of a mother are you? How could you possibly have let him take the car? You're not a mother. You're a murderer. Are you shocked that a friend would call and say something like that at a time like that? Absolutely. But you'd probably be much less shocked if I said it wasn't what a friend told her, it's what she told herself. That is the second arrow. It's bad enough to have a son who's been injured, operated on, recovering, and telling herself she's a useless mother and a murderer. Does it make things any better? Obviously not, but we do it all the time. That is the second arrow, and the second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. Let me repeat that. The second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. I coach very successful people. And if I could get them to stop at the second arrow, they'd be way ahead of the game. Most of the time, it's the fifth, sixth, and 23rd arrows that they're busy shooting at themselves without even having realized it. That is super profound. And I think more timely than ever. Because, you know, a lot of people, what I've found in talking to my patients is as bad as the COVID already is, the mental chatter actually just magnifies, amplifies the negative part. By an order of magnitude, Linda, by an order of magnitude. In fact, here's a statement I'm making. Any problem that you are facing, any problem that any of the persons listening to this is facing, your mental chatter about that problem is making it at least an order of magnitude worse than it is. Absolutely. Blanket statement. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap up. And of course, another day, we're going to talk a lot more, but I, um, there's a couple, there's two more questions I want to ask you. I want to add too that I've been sitting down with every single patient. You know, you want to make some conversations and reconnect after you haven't seen them in so long. And I'm popping out with Tell me, so tell me what you've learned during the pandemic. Tell me the things that you, that you, we could talk about all the negative stuff, but let's, let's reconnect here by you telling me one or two things that you found that you never would have known or discovered about life. That's going to be much better because you're going to continue it 
has had the pandemic not happened? Oh, that's absolutely uh, easy for me to do. I'm almost shooting second arrows at myself as I tell you that, because personally speaking, the pandemic has been good for me and my family. My children came and stayed with me for extended period, weeks at a time, and this is time spent with them that would never have happened but for the pandemic. Of course. And we discovered, you know, all kinds of things about each other. There was bonding. We ate together, watched, you know, silly TV together, laughed, played games, and it was just a wonderful experience. Oh, that is so, that's such a great thing to share. And as I said, I'm shooting second arrows at myself and saying that it was wonderful for me personally when I recognize how much disruption it has caused in the world outside, both economic disruption and personal disruption, including lives lost Mm -hmm. uselessly, families Mm -hmm. uh, sundered apart and so Mm -hmm. on. But in the end, we do get to choose what we give our attention to. And these are the things that I'm noticing people doing there. They are giving their attention to new things they would have never, they would have never done. And that's, that, that's our choice. That is completely our choice. Some of it could be negative. You know, I lost my job and so on. You know, you lost your job, right? But bemoaning it and saying, oh my God, I wish it didn't happen. It's how terrible is my life. I'm really unlucky. Does all of that or any of that make better in any way. Sometimes you have to have a lot of discipline about that mental chatter. Absolutely. So I want to make sure everyone knows where they can access your work and your courses and your books. And I would recommend this is just the beginning. Okay, Linda, the best way for someone to find out about me is to go to my website. And my website is www therauinstitute.com, T-H-E-R-A-O institute.com. Or they can simply Google my name, Srikumar Rao, and it'll pop up. That's R-A-O. R-A-O is correct. Or they can email me, and my email is Srikumar, S-R-I-K-U-M-A-R dot Rao, R-A-O, at therauinstitute.com. And Sweetcomar, you have some things I'm I'm getting in my emails all the time that I'm just so enjoying. How do people get connected to that? They should go to my website mm-hmm. and they click on a button called Join the Community. And when they do, they will be given the opportunity to register. And if they do, then they will be hearing from me. Well, I'll tell you, those things that I'm getting from you, they always seem to land in this serendipitous way that it, it's, it it's always seems like it's strangely something I needed to hear right at that moment. So thanks for sharing those things with us. I've got one very last question for you. I always ask everybody. The website that we started with and now have expanded into lots of different platforms is called Ever Widening Circles. And our uh, little subtitle is, It is Still an Amazing World. So I always like to finish by asking people, you know, what proves to you that it is still an amazing world? What proves to me that it is an amazing world? I'm going to answer your question at two levels. Level number one is, despite the horror, the fear, and the scare, that uh, scary stuff that is happening, and a lot of it is created by the media, by the way, We are arguably in the best time we've ever been. 
If you look at the percentage of population that is not starving, if you look at the percentage of the population that can expect to live to a certain age, uh, we find that the world is better off today than it's ever been. The number of people living in a reasonable democracy, the number of people who don't have to be scared on a day-to-day basis that they're going to get bumped off by the state. And the second part of it is there are more channels available than ever before for persons to know that the world we live in is not a real world. It is a construct. Every one of us is living in the matrix. This is not a matrix created by an alien civilization out to enslave us with something that we created with our mental chatter and our mental models. And there are more and more channels for us to discover the truth of this for ourselves so we can get out of the matrix that is holding us in prison and construct our own matrix, which will give us the freedom. An ever-widening circle is one of those avenues. And there are many, many such avenues. That is so, so kind of you. Okay, I'm. we're going to wrap up, but... I'm going to leave us with um, everybody with a thought that we're going to talk again and we're going to talk about this matrix concept. This is a really fascinating practical concept that, that Speakmar has. So next time let's talk about how you cope with the news and the matrix thing. Does that sound good? That sounds good. And it will be at my absolute pleasure to do that. And I will wager you when we're done with that, we'll have something else to talk about. And that's okay. <laughs> okay, great. So for more information about our guesswork on the subjects we mentioned, any of them, check out the show notes in the links. And as always, dive into ever-widening circles, the universe there by visiting ewc.co. That's short for ever-widening circles, ewc.co. And if there are students in your life, turn them loose on our education website at ewced.com and subscribe to the Everwidening Circles app. You know, people ask me every day how they can help our effort. That's the number one thing you can do. For less than a dollar a month, you're going to have the antidote to the daily news right in the palm of your hand. And that $1 will help us send a signal to content creators that people will support positive content. That's the direction we have to move. And the big news is we'll be hosting at the first Conspiracy of Goodness Summit on October 4th. And bigger yet, Suikamar is going to join us for that summit and share no end to the goodness and progress that we can make in our own minds about our perspectives. You can get tickets to the uh, Conspiracy of Goodness Summit on the website at cogsummit.com. That's COG, (laughs) short for Conspiracy of Goodness, cogsummit.com. And I hope all these connections to goodness and progress carry through your week and you can start finding all that joy and wonder we've been talking about.